My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior Army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Stay tuned because it's part two of our conversation that we have with Rick Lamb. We're down, if you remember from the last one, we're in Panama now. Just Cause hasn't happened, uh, but a lot of things have transpired throughout his career to shape him into the soldier that he is in Panama. Rick, welcome back for the second part of this conversation. Let's get right into this. So you you wanted Panama, you got Panama you have a crazy time when you come down there and you meet guys with parrots on their shoulders and you're going for midnight ruck marches and and uh, beach parties for Christmas. You really figure out that this is your family. More than, from what I'm understanding and everything that we've talked about in your career, more than you've ever felt in the military so far. This is really your team. You have some family stuff that happens and you decide that why be in the United States when I can be with these guys. So you're in Panama. Are tensions starting to mount because we're talking about the 80s going in, you know, I guess you would call 86, late 80s. Uh, we're starting to kind of get the narcotics trade that's going back and forth. That stuff is kicking up. Are you seeing a difference in the Panama from when you got there till... Uh, where you're at right now, or is it still kind of the same? Yeah, I mean, and the people were always great. The uh, you know, we, we you know person to person, people to people, we got along great. The uh, but you know, in the back, I mean, they were like you know dictatorships often do. I mean, they'll they'll start dividing the people into the haves and the have-nots, and you had the dignity battalions that uh, yeah, they were going to make sure that the Americans leave, uh, even though you know we're nobody nobody said we weren't leaving. And uh, so you had the dignity battalions there, and they, they were basically just the you know, the guys who go around and thump up. Uh, but Noriega had uh, you know, it was time for him to go, and uh, so there was a coup that happened, and uh, they actually the officer that um, that that had the coup, you know, grabbed Noriega and threw threw him in a in a in a little office building, and uh, you know, an office with a phone in it, and the. Uh, he picks up the phone and he calls the, um, the, the guys at Fort Cimarron and, uh, and that, that battalion moves and then they take over the, the coup plotter. And uh, we had a chance right then to step in, but I think the, uh, as they were looking at, you got Noriega and then you got the guy that just did the coup and they're, they're one and the same, you know, they're, they're, they're two, uh, both of them are knuckleheads and maybe somebody we don't want to back. So they just decided to, and so we got called out for that. And uh, just so they, they would have a, have the ability to, um, if we were going to step in, then we would be the guys that stepped in. And, uh, but they, 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 they drew us back. And I want to say that was like in October. So things were, um, we'd already started looking at, um, you know, the, the Panamanian defense forces were, were starting to get heavy handed and they had, um, they were, they had checkpoints. In fact, my, you know, my wife was in college at the time, so she would, uh, she would go from Fort Davis on the uh, the Atlantic side over to um, the Panama Canal school there 
the uh, the Pan, Pan Canal College, which was a two year two year college, and uh, they started armoring up the uh, so they, they, everybody had to go on a bus. You couldn't take your your privately owned vehicles anymore, and uh, they would they would do convoys. So they'd have MP vehicles uh, front and rear, and so things like that were deteriorating. You started seeing sandbags going up around the so you you knew it was close. And some of it was posturing, some of it wasn't. But I think they actually uh, there was a Navy kid that got shot and uh, killed at one of the one of the uh, roadblocks. And that's when President Bush said, "No, this is it. He's going down." And uh, we had already done a lot of the target folders, you know, based on uh, who we thought would fight, who wouldn't fight, and uh, and so we we everybody had their their targets on uh, on on game night, and uh, ours were uh, we, we were supposed to uh, actually secure. The president and the vice presidents of Panama, and uh, we we're going to fly over to their houses. We had already done the, the work up on their houses. We we're going to grab them and then take them to the embassy uh, right as the right as the the, the war started. And uh, but then the State Department got a great idea, which uh, they said, "Hey, we'll just call them up the night before and invite them to a dinner. And then once they're at them and their families are at the at the embassy for dinner, we'll just lock them down and say, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're we're coming in tomorrow.'" And uh, so we, we lost our initial infill mission, but uh, you know, we were sitting there on the tarmac and then and the, and it just kept coming. So we started taking down uh, you know, radio exchanges, phone exchanges, you know, all the uh, you're taking down the command and control. And uh, we got a uh, we had just come back from a TV station, knocking it off the air so that uh, they, they wouldn't have the ability to communicate. And we came back into the hangar at Albrook and uh, one of the kids turned on a uh, Brad Smith, I think, turned on a. Uh, transistor radio and he spoke fluent Spanish and he's uh, he's going through the channels to see what else is up and bam all of a sudden he hears Noriega speaking and Noriega saying you know grab kitchen knives and fight him in the streets and uh, don't give up and uh, so somebody said hey what is the radio call sign that you're listening to so he looks at it uh, they, they go over to the to the phone book and they leaf through the phone book, and we find out that the, that that particular radio station was just like two blocks away, down at uh, down on Balboa. So we get on the aircraft, and uh, we fast rope onto the top of this building because we think Noriega is broadcasting from the inside. And uh, so we have uh, so we're, you know, the fast ropes are just sliding down the ropes, and you're uh, you get up on the on the on the top. So we're gonna we're gonna disable the antenna, and then we go over to the door that's going to get us inside. And uh, it's one of those one hour doors. I mean, they call it a one hour door because you can beat on it with a sledgehammer for about an hour before and a crowbar before you can get it open. And so we, we were in a conundrum. They're like, well, we can't blow the, the box here on the antenna and knock the, knock the radio off the air and open this door at the same time. We don't have enough explosives. So we started uh, same guy. Remember Tony Layden, the, the, the freaking midnight ruck guy. We're looking over the side of the, the side of the building, and uh, I missed like 17 stories, and uh, so we we said, okay, we think if we route this fast rope, you know, the helicopter can't fly away with the fast ropes; they they have to cut them loose and they fall on the uh, the roof. And if we route them through here and throw them over the top, we could probably make that first balcony, and, uh, <laughs> and so. So it was me and Tony Lane. It was like after you. <laughs> yeah. So we got down. To, I think it was uh, yeah, Tony, Brad, and myself. We get down on the balcony, and then we were inside. And then we'd run up and unlock the door and let let the guys in. And uh, so we uh, we took that. It, and Noriega wasn't there. It was a tape. 
So, uh, but it was just, you know, missions like that. So as, as we're running down to the, uh, to the bottom and we're going to go out and have the birds pick us up on the, on the beach across the street, the, uh, there's a guy at the front door with a gun and he's the, he's the guard of the building. And he, he, he's, you know, I'm supposed to guard this building. And we're like, we're, we're, we just took the building. We, we, we need to get out of here. And he, and he wasn't letting us out. <laughs> and so I think one of the guys had to shoot him in the leg and then the medic treats him. And the, and the whole time he's talking to him in Spanish, like, why didn't you just drop the gun and let us go? And, uh, and he's like, but this is my job. <laughs> so we found the one, the one dude that uh, took his job seriously. And then uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> So we get, we get back to Albrook and, uh, and we get a call from the Rangers and uh, the Rangers had just jumped into uh, Pannonia up north at uh, Rio Hato rather. And uh, they want to know if um, we know anybody in the Pannonia where there was like the military zone. And a couple of the guys did. They said, yeah, we, uh, we used to jump. And this is where, you know, you, you, you don't have this relationship unless you live there. He said, yeah, they had a parachute team. We had a parachute team and uh, we used to, compete with them against the Noriega cup. They said, what do you think they're going to fight? And they're like, no, they don't want to fight. And uh, well, let's call them. And uh, so they ended up calling the guys and saying, Hey man, what, uh, what's up? And they're like, man, we don't want anything of this. We, and so, so basically they negotiated on the telephone, the, uh, you know, get your guys, have a formation, have all your uh, weapons locked in the arms room, have a list of all the weapons, have the keys to the arms room, have a list of all your sensitive items. We don't, we want to know who's here and who's, who's not. And uh, we will come and process you. You know, we be in the SF guys. And uh, so we linked up with the Rangers and uh, we said, Hey, we think this is going to work. And uh, they're like, uh, man, uh, I don't know. You know, cause it, cause they do, they do raids and recons. Right. right. And uh, they don't so trust anybody. Hit. No, exactly. We won't hit this place. And uh, so I was talking to the one guy and I said, Hey, um, I think, I think we could still do this, but, you know, we've set up a perimeter. We'll collapse one half of the perimeter. And then we just have within that, that, that linear portion of the perimeter, we'll cut out little boxes in there. You know, you have a dirty area, a wash area where you want, we're going to, we're going to make search them. And then we'll have a clean area where we sit them down. Uh, so we'd have Rangers at the top of that thing, looking, making sure that uh, you know, no, nobody goes. And I said, we have 360 degree fields of fire. And uh, so if we just get out there and we set this up, and then we'll go in there and we'll get them and we'll bring, we'll pipe piper them out and, uh, and we'll get them processed through here. And, uh, the guy goes, man, I, I don't think we can control this. And then out of the, out of the shadows steps, the commander who I had served with in the uh, first battalion. And they said, Rick will control it. You know, you just, uh, said, so, so I, I got to, I got to take tactical control of, uh, of that Ranger company. And, uh, unless the shit started, <laughs> well, that, and then, and then the old man said, "Then you hit the ground, and we'll take care of business from there." <laughs> well, that's what I was about to say. You're getting volunteered for a lot of shit today. Yes, was the, so we, uh, we we actually rehearsed it, and we we did it right. We rehearsed it. We uh, task organized. We uh, we broke down into groups, and we, uh, we 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 ran it about three different times. Which uh, you know, I was the, and, and we controlled it through chem lights and you know the chemical lights, and uh, so we had a different color, and uh, so I had like four four to six Claymore bags just full of chem lights. And so I looked like a big Christmas tree running around there, you know, flopping lights out because I'd have to go run and set everything up. And then, the, and then the Joes would just fall in on top of it. And, uh, I was, uh, I was exhausted by the time we got on the, the, the helicopter just to go set up. 
But it, it, it turned out well. We took like 188 prisoners, I think, all during the hours of darkness. And, and only at one point did uh, they started to figure it out because they, they would only see the A team. And uh, the A team would come because they were all on the they were all on the uh, the soccer court. So the A team would come, would would take a group out, and then the A team would come back, take another group out, and they only saw you know the the eight or ten guys that uh, that were, and so and, and everybody there spoke Spanish. So they they started talking about um, I think we could take these guys. Why are we? You know, it's the same eight dudes. You know, the, why, why are we surrendering to these eight guys? You know we got hundred you know we got two hundred people here. And uh, so that's when we called up the uh, the AC-130, which was droning overhead, and had him uh, light up the area with that big old 10,000-candle-watt yeah. know, freaking xenon searchlight. And then you can see that, oh, my God, there's rangers out here. There's <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff out here. There's little birds running around. And uh, so they, they went they went docile right back. But that was the only time that uh, you know, we thought we might get uh, might get in trouble. I think you should have just told him, look, we shot a security guard in the leg today for talking just like you guys are right now. (laughs) (laughs) So unless you want to be a bunch of limping bastards, do what we say and get over here. So not a shot's fired. And and that seems to be, um, you know, that, that combat in Panama happened so quickly. Everything happened in place. And, and I kind of talked to Stu about this, and I want to ask you kind of the same thing. Why do you think that that fell so quickly? Was it the planning? Was it the the units that they, that, that they used? Was it the personnel that they used? Because when you look at it, um, when we talked about Eagle Claw, how much trouble they had with getting everything done, what made this one so different and made it fall so quickly? I think it was the because um, you look at Eagle Claw, and uh, and they knew there was a problem, and uh, but they weren't willing to fix it. Well, then you roll into Grenada, right? And uh, Grenada was a problem, and uh, that's when they knew that they had to fix it. And then Congress forced them to fix it. So so all along, I think they're fixing. Uh, and, and and this is also, I mean, it's it's the Reagan years. So you know, we uh, when, when in the Rangers in the gosh the late seventies, you know, we still had Vietnam gear. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're still flying in Hueys, but uh, but as the buildup happened in the '80s, I mean, we get we get everything from new boots to new uniforms, new weapons, new pistols, new knives, new load carrying equipment, new uh, new new main battle tank, new uh, new armored personnel carriers, new helicopters. I mean, so everything is getting is getting rebuilt, and uh, and they're starting to fix a lot of those lessons. And uh, so 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 I think the and the planning, you know, for they called it Blue Spoon before it was Just Cause. And, uh, and that probably started 18, if not 24 months out. And uh, so all those target decks, all those places, I mean, so we knew exactly who had to hit it. And, and a lot of, I mean, at least in the third battalion, uh, you know, we lived there. So it, it wasn't, uh, we, we knew the, we knew the place as good as they did. And, uh, and, and, and also I think there was a relationship there to where a lot of the, the, you know, the guys in Pannonia did not want to fight. You know, and and that's what's interesting to me, because when you say live there, you kind of have to go back after all this is said and done. You have to kind of go back and live there. I mean, you were there till what, 92? 92, yeah. So we're talking 89. You're there, you know, three more years. Uh, 
how is it different once this is all over? Because I don't think a lot of people talk about this with Just Cause and with Panama. I don't think a lot of people realize that we just went right back to living over there. Like it'd be, you know, it was our, you know, our posts and our, our, uh, uh, you know, our, our forward, I guess you would call it a forward base there. Um, yeah. It just went it back to into, Yeah, it, it turned into Kindle Liberty, I think was the, I think that's what they called it, um, after Just Cause. And then it was, you know, working with the Panamanian Defense Forces and uh, to teach them, you know, teach them how to be stand-up guys. So, uh, so we did a lot of training locally with the, uh, with the Panamanian Defense Force and, you know, turned them into more of a police force than a, than a military. Was that, was that a difficult thing? Because in, in things that I've read, you, you have a lot of corruption going True. on. Um, yep. Do you still have that corruption after Just Cause? And, and is it hard? Because, I mean, that's you guys' job as the special forces team over there is to train these guys up. Are you seeing that you have a lot of problems with the corruption or with bringing these guys kind of online? I, I think there was, but they, they just worked through it. The, uh, you know, we, we ran into some of the same issues in Haiti and uh, you know, trying to take the you know, their constabulary and turn them into, uh, you know, into, into police. And it was, uh, you know, we, we, we actually had to, um, we went back to Fort Bragg and uh, got with the um, Cumberland County Sheriff's Department and the, uh, the, the, the local police department. And we got all their old equipment and uh, their old uniforms. And then uh, we went to one of the sew shops there in Bragg and we got a new patch made for, uh, for the police department. And so we, uh, we just totally outfitted them into, uh, you know, more professional looking uniforms that, uh, with, with a patch and then give, gave them a, some a spree decor, but it just changed the whole way that the, the whole dynamic to how the, the civilian, you know, the, the civilian populace would see him. And then we, uh, we went on patrols with them. And of course they set up a training academy. I think they had, uh, former law enforcement guys that came in and set up the, the actual no kidding training academy. But in the early days, when uh, we were just looking to, to have security, the, uh, you know, it, it changed it. New, new uniform, put a fresh coat of paint on it, and then just walked with them so they could see see how we would do it. And uh, it changed. Let me jump forward, and, and we'll get back to your career. But I want to ask a question that's related to that. When you, when you say you do the uniforms, you put a new coat of paint on it, you walk these guys through it, and you see a difference, do you think that, kind of success is ever um going to happen for places like afghanistan for iraq where we've made progress in iraq and things like that but do you think it will ever be of that level where you say it completely changes and they start training in a different way do you think that will ever happen in places like that i, I think it could but um yeah I, I studied islam for for about eight years as an Intel guy. And, uh, I mean, there was, and I'm not hacking on, but there, there's some toxic stuff in there. And, uh, so if, if you, if you go towards the toxicity and that's what you believe, then, uh, but I, I would almost make the argument, um, that we were probably seeing changes. Yeah, I mean, we had had 20 years in there. You had, you had women that were police officers that were judges that, uh, yeah, that were, they were going to school and, uh, I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. I, you know, MacArthur, I think stood it's in Seoul and uh, he said, it's going to take these people a hundred years to recover from this. And they did that, did it in less than half that. I mean, after, after the Olympics, it was, you know, uh, I think they had the Olympics in, uh, 
80, 88, I think. So after, after the Olympics, it was, there was no look, no turning back. And I mean, I, I, you know, I went there, um, the first time in Korea, it was exactly 30 years after, uh, after the war had ended. So I was there in 84 and the war was, you know, the truce had signed in 54. And you, and you could see that, um, there, there were still some impoverished places, but I went back again, almost 30 years, you know, to, to the day, uh, I went back in 2015 and, uh, God, it was night and day. I mean, the kids were, uh, were tall, you know, good looking, you know, I mean, they, they, they towered over me. I was just, so just their standard of living, the food that they eat, the, uh, you know, the, 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 so, you know, that's, and that's 60 years. Well, so how do you explain the dichotomy over there? Because you're talking about South Korea, of course. Yeah. Uh, but you go right across the, the line into North Korea and it's locked down and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say a prehistoric way of living, but it's definitely other than to the elite and the ruling class, it, it's not a great place. No, True. You know, even the, uh, the, this, the last kid, when I was over there in 2015, they had a defector come across and, uh, I mean, full of tapeworms. And he, he was, he was one of the, uh, supposedly well-fed, you know, protected military class that worked there within the truce village. And, uh, and I mean, that, that kid was, uh, was mal, malnourished and had, had big old tapeworms and, and stuff crawling in his, in his intestines. So. Yeah, it uh, as far you know, and it, it's amazing to me because you you see where things can work, yeah. but in if, in, if given in, a chance, exactly. Yeah, and in the flip of a coin, you can see the exact opposite happening. You talk about Panama, and you talk about uh, where where that you know that way of thinking, that corruption, and all that stuff is changed. And then you talk about places like Afghanistan that after 20 years, you, you have female judges, you have female police officers, a different way of thinking. And then when we leave and a vacuum creates and, and you lose all of that again, it, it almost seems that in some parts that, that, uh, what is it going to take to make those changes permanent? And, and I don't know that there really is an answer. Yeah, I, I don't either. Cause you know, some are cultural, and, um, and, and I don't know how you get beyond that because, you know, when culture is ingrained in you since you're a, since you're a young child, I mean, anything else is just, uh, is, you know, I, I can't think of the word anathema. You know, it's just, it's, um, it's not going to compute. Yeah. It, you know, and, and when you say you talk about children are raised that way, I mean, we're talking about generations and centuries of being True. taught that, especially when you're talking about Afghanistan, Iraq, things like that. We're talking generation after generation has been taught that. Um, I want to move forward kind of in your career and talk about Gothic Serpent. Now, a lot of people know this by Black Hawk Down. Now, you were with the Rangers over there, 3rd Ranger Battalion, um, and you were part of this. Now, you weren't just part of this, though, because as you read your story, you've had some crazy shit happen to you that is is beyond comprehension to me about some of the things. And as we go through this, I want to talk about your injuries that you receive, how long it takes to actually realize that they're injuries. And I want to talk about what what we've learned from that, uh, from Gothic Serpent. 
Um, we have recently just passed over the anniversary date of it. Um, and so I want to talk about what you guys were doing on the ground, what your mission was. And and we've talked to other people. Uh, Brad Thomas was on the show, um, who was with the Rangers at that time, uh, who later went to Delta force. But I want to hear your thinking. What rank are you now as you're over there? Yeah, I think I had, uh, I had just made, uh, or I was a Sergeant first class. Okay. And, uh, so, so if, if you go back to Panama, the, uh, I'm, I'm about ready to leave. I'm on orders actually to, to go to, I think second battalion, seventh group up at Fort Bragg. Okay. And I, and I tried to put in reassignments to go back to the Rangers, but, uh, you know, during, during my time in special forces, the branches split. So I'm no longer an infantryman, which are the Rangers. I'm now a special forces guy, which is an, an 18 series. So it's a, it's a separate, it's an apple and an orange and I, I can't get back into the Rangers. And uh, so I'm actually on my leave to, to PCS, you know, change stations, go to Fort Bragg. And uh, I'm over, in fact, my wife and I are over the Pacific side. We're in a hotel waiting on our, uh, our, our flight to leave. And uh, we spent the weekend over there. And so I get a phone call and they, it is the team, right? And they say, hey, Rick, we're doing Fulton extraction out on the runway uh, on Fort Sherman. And the Fulton extraction, if you've ever seen the movie, the Green Beret, where the, where the AC, the C-130 flies and there, there's a balloon and they catch, catch the balloon and they, they bring the guy up, you know, winch him into the back of the plane. And uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a, a man in a suit tethered to a balloon and the plane, you know, the fixed wing aircraft snatches him and, and they drag him in. So they're doing that training out on Sherman. So I go out to play around, right? I was about and, to say, uh, I think they're just trying to get you back. So, so the Rangers had jumped into a Gatoon drop zone and they, they did the 10 mile road march up to the Katoman area on Sherman. And guess who the company commander is? The company commander was, um, was Keneally, Captain Keneally, uh, or the battalion commander rather, was uh, Captain Keneally, who was the company commander after Grange. So Grange is now the, the, the Ranger regimental commander and the third Ranger battalion commander is Keneally. And Grange had jumped in with Keneally and went to Panama with him. So both my two previous company commanders and the Rangers are standing there on the on the, the airfield. And they asked the question, why haven't you come back to regiment? And I said, well, they won't let me. And uh, so you know, then, then Colonel Grange says, what are you doing now? I said, I'm getting ready to sign into the 2nd Battalion at Bragg next week. And he goes, how much leave do you have? I said, I got about a month. And he goes, don't sign in. He said, if you sign in, they got you. So I will come through um, Fort Bragg in about 10 days, and you and I will go see um, General Downing. And I said, sir, I'm an E7. If I go in to see General Downing, they will cut my nuts off. And he goes, okay, we'll go. Well, then we'll go see um, General Potter in, at, at SF Command. And the whole thing behind this running that I didn't know about was that General Downing had seen the Rangers and the Special Forces start to split. And he liked what a, what a Ranger brought to Special Forces and he liked what the special forces brought back to the Rangers and he, he missed that cross pollinization. So he wanted to do this thing called crosswalk to where you would take a kid that started out in the Rangers and uh, send him to special forces. And then he would uh, go back to the Rangers and, so, and they had it, they had it all worked out to where you'd, you'd be an E five or a Sergeant and be a fire team leader. And you go do your junior weapons time. You'd come back as a squad leader and the Rangers make staff Sergeant 
then you go back and be a, 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 a junior junior weapons and then senior weapons and then platoon sergeant. You could just keep keep going back and forth. And so I, I got the opportunity to do that. And that's how I ended up in uh, in third ranger battalion. So as I walk into third ranger battalion, I'm supposed to be going there as a platoon sergeant. And I walk in to get uh, to get interviewed by the um, uh, battalion sergeant major. And he was a, he was an old seventh group guy. And uh, so he goes, Rick, welcome to welcome to third uh, third battalion. It's great that we're starting this crosswalk thing. And uh, he says, I got some bad news. I'm going to keep you up here in the uh, in the headquarters. You know, I want you to be my battalion ops. And I said, but come on, Sergeant Major, I'm supposed to go down and take a platoon. And he goes, did you see that master sergeant that walking walking down the hall with his head hanging down as, as you were walking in? I said, Roger that. And he goes, I just fired him. <laughs> he said, you've been to O&I school. I know you've been to O&I school. He said, so I need you to run the battalion op shop. And, uh, and he says, then he said, but the good thing is that you can pick the company that you go to uh, after you do about a year up here. Let me, let me get another guy out of, out of O&I and, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, so this, this all work out. So, and, and it did because I, uh, so I actually deployed to um, Somalia as the battalion ops guy. And because uh, my, my wife was, she was uh, nine months pregnant. And, uh, and this is, this is where, I mean, for your listeners out there, you know, the, uh, the army wives, I mean, hats off to them. Yeah. So she's nine months pregnant and, uh, they, they, she goes into labor. So, so we've gone to do a 10 day train up at Fort Bragg and then they hadn't signed the deployment orders yet to go over to Somalia and, and get ID'd. And uh, so I come home that night and she said, the baby's coming tonight. And uh, I'm like, well, how do you know? She goes, well, I know these things. That uh, you know, I'm a woman. I've had a kid before. It's coming. So we sit up and wait on the baby. I think we go in about zero two. The baby comes out at zero uh, zero six, and I call the staff duty to say, hey, I'm uh, I'm gonna be late for PT formation because my wife just gave birth at the hospital. And they said, whoa, whoa, the the company's gone. They said at two o'clock in the morning, they, uh, they signed the deployment order. Everybody got on buses. They're back down at the airfield and they've already departed back to Bragg. And so I went in and, uh, I said, what do you need me to do? They said, well, there's a, go to the staff duty desk. There's a list of about 10 guys that need to get pulled out of school. So they need their, their bags packed, their weapons and, uh, get two, two uh, vans out of the uh, motor pool. And then you drive up to Fort Bragg and meet us. And uh, so I had to go back to my wife, you know, and, and uh, tell her, hey, baby, I, I, I got to go. And um, I, the look on her face at that time, I'm in mean, tears. And the, uh, I, I don't know how she, she, stuck, she stuck with me for, for so long. But uh, about that time, the, the wives come in, you know, the uh, battalion wives, and they knew everything that was going on. And uh, so, like, baby's first picture, the ride home, because I had to take the car. And uh, you know, they, they, they got, her, got her squared away got the, you know, the flowers, the balloons, the, the pictures. And, uh, so, so I ended up going as the battalion ops to, uh, to Somalia. And again, the mission was, um, and, and, and again, we're right at one of those things like, you know, with, with the rain hostage rescue mission, you're trying to put together kind of the multi, uh, the, the multi team. And, uh, so this is, this is another conundrum that, uh, Somalia had ceased being a state in like 1990 and uh, broken into civil war. So by the time we roll in there in 93, we hadn't had an embassy in there in years. So if you don't have an embassy, you don't have the CIA. If you don't have the CIA, you don't have the human, uh, the human and physical infrastructure. You know, you don't have the intel that you need to, 
to know where this guy's at. So again, it was, um, we had to bring in the assets to spot, assess and recruit, you know, the, uh, the human informants that we needed to be able to track this guy. Um, we didn't have a lot of, um, we didn't have the drones that we have today. So, uh, so we were bringing in, um, aircraft from, I think, Kenya that, that would have a, you know, flight time over the top and they're running their cameras and, and, uh, we've got some sources out there, but it's, it's just all hit and miss. I mean, we're right behind it. And, uh, but we had, we had developed some newer tactics to where you could either infill by air and, um, stop convoys, you know, from the air, um, you could infill on by ground and, uh, um, you know, secure a, a building and then either infill by air or by ground, exfill by air or by ground. So, so we had a, a good mix of, uh, you know, if we, if we was in a convoy or if he was in a building, then we could go take it. We did about seven missions, I think, um, using that template that was, uh, that was pretty successful. But the problem is, is if you use seven, if you do that seven times, they're going to start figuring it out. Yeah. They're going to know that you infill by air, you reinforce by ground, you exfill by ground or by air. And uh, so we could see it as it was happening that they were, they were super elevating the, uh, the RPGs. And, uh, cause those RPGs will go to max, max distance. I think I can't remember what the maximum distance is and it'll explode that way. You don't have to run over it. You know, if, if you miss the tank and it keeps on going, then, uh, it looks, it'll self self-destruct. And, uh, so they were super elevating those things and, and, uh, trying to shoot at the helicopters and, and they'd actually shot one down, uh, from the 101st about a week or 10 days earlier. And, uh, so you know, and that, and that should have helped us change up, you know, fly a little bit higher, but again, with the mission sets that we were doing and the tactics and techniques that we were doing, the, uh, we didn't have the luxury of doing that. They were started blocking the roads, um, burning tires, working their command and control. And, uh, so, you know, by the time they, uh, by the time we got onto, uh, the Olympic hotel, that was when they, uh, it did, it, once, once they, once they shot that helicopter down, and, uh, and then they tied us to terrain because our speed and uh, our ability to maneuver was kind of our security. And, uh, but once they tied us to a spot on the ground, you know, that's when, uh, that's when, you know, just, just like the Vietnamese and, uh, you know, in, in Vietnam, you know, they, they said that if you get underneath the Americans technology and grab them by the belt, that's when you kill them. And uh, so that was, that was kind of their, their plan as well. So let's talk about mind state for this for a minute. Um, this is this is a little bit different um, in the way we're going in. We already talked about Panama, how how quick and how decisive it was. We're going in here. We're trying to pull this guy out, but the 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 plan goes haywire. You said we do it seven times. They start learning. They're they're moving. Now we're in a place where um, you don't know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy because it, it changes at the drop of a hat. Good guy, bad guy, depending on the True. way the, depending by on the way. Yeah. By the neighborhood, by, you know, just what's going on. So how do we approach this in, in your mind? How do we approach this different than we approach other things? Because of course we have to approach it differently because it's a completely different kind of fight. Yeah. And, and again, the, um, and, and you bring up a good point too, because you know collateral damage. I mean, what what is collateral damage in a place that's that has no electricity, that uh, has no running water, that uh, you know where the buildings are, are falling apart? I mean, it, it um, so it you know it, a lot of times it just doesn't compute, doesn't make sense. And um, you know, with the rules of engagement, the 
and, and you'll hear some of the stories of the kids that uh, I mean, where they had to shoot kids, they, you know, they had to shoot, uh, you know, women. I mean, they had to shoot because the you know, behind them was the uh, was the bad guys that were trying to kill them. And uh, so, and it uh, you know, and initially, and and it deteriorates over time. I mean, I, I can't remember how long that firefight went, but it went a good 12, 16, 18 hours. You know, from the time they went out, I think they went about about two in the afternoon, and they didn't get in till uh, probably zero six. So when they actually hit the stadium the following morning, and uh, so, you know, it it, uh, it gets to the point where um, you're you're almost wishing that somebody would shoot you because the uh, you know the gear gets heavy at that point, the the prickly heat, the you know the, a lot of the guys had been wounded you know uh, from shrapnel, and uh, you know, they're, they're you're almost like a zombie at that point. But um, they, they did they did pretty well. I mean, uh, as far as uh, you know, I, I didn't see, they stayed focused. And, uh, and, and working with the internationals too was uh, was just uh, was challenging because we hadn't done it prior to. So you know we had to get the Pakistanis who had the armored vehicles, and then the uh, or no I'm sorry the Pakistanis had the tanks. They had these old uh, M48 tanks. And then the Malaysians had the armored vehicles, so it because uh, the first the first time we went out uh, on the actual mission, you know they had uh, they had part of the convoy that uh, that got separated because they were bringing back uh, one of the guys that was wounded, and uh, so then we had to go out and get that and grab that and bring it back in, and uh, and the whole time I mean they know that we're going to come out of those gates, so that uh, that that first rush out of the gates was uh, was a hornet's nest. And so we were able to get the vehicles and bring them back. But the second time we tried to rush that gate, the, uh, we got soundly repulsed. So the, uh, and the same thing with the 10th Mountain, who's coming down from the north. And that was another issue, too, is that we, you know, we didn't do a lot of work. It was so secretive, and uh, it, was, it was done in, you know, in, in secrecy so that we didn't have a chance to work with the 10th Mountain or the 101st, you know, the guys that were RQRF. We didn't have a chance to work with the, any of the international partners. And uh, so they're, they're playing pickup ball. And a lot of that stuff we just put together, you know, at the, we decided, okay, we're at the airfield. Uh, it's, it's tied next to the port. So we'll go down to the port and then we'll come out the gate of the port and we'll, uh, we'll attack it from that direction. But that was where we had to actually then sit down, retask, organize, get into Malaysian uh, armored vehicles, get into the packy tanks. You know, at that point I had, uh, you know, there were so many people that were wounded uh, from the initial um, fray, so we sent out about three different convoys, I think, that night. And uh, so by the time the third convoy went out, you know, we'd actually taken every able-bodied ranger off of the wall. And uh, so all the cooks, the clerks, the uh, you know, the ammo NCO, the the the, the combo guys, and uh, we'd taken you. Know, if, if you're assigned to the ranger regiment, you're a ranger, so get your gun, get your gear, and uh, get in that truck. And so I got uh, about. We, we've been repulsed a couple of times to the point of where the, the trucks were so shot up. My, my poor driver, Easterbrooks, you know, he had, uh, the cab had gotten stitched and he's, you know, if you, if you have your driver, your hands at 10 and two, the, uh, at 12, at 12 o'clock on the wheel, you know, the wheel is just snapped. And so that, that thing had gone right straight through between his hands and missed his head, kept on going out. And he's, uh, so and I, we had to come back and say, hey, all right, Easty, we got it. We got to go back out again because that that truck was so shot up that we couldn't get it back on the road. So we had to swap out. And we're thinking we're going to get one of the, the Malaysian uh, armored vehicles, but they gave us a Hummer, and uh, so we got a cargo Hummer, 
and uh, then he finally did get wounded. He got shot uh, uh, in the hand, and uh, so he was driving. And we had to we had to pull him out of the seat, throw him up on the hood, and then uh, I was the passenger. So I crawl over the transmission hump because you know you can keep those things going with a throttle. And uh, so I was driving, and uh, the docs were working on him. And I remember pushing my helmet back and kind of doing this, going whoo. And uh, then we got nailed again, and uh, an RPG had skidded off the hood and uh, smashed into the wall. And uh, so it, it, everything slows down, so I'm following it. And uh, I just remember my head snapping back and the blood squirting onto the, uh, the, the running lights, the dashboard. And I remember swearing under my breath, going, damn it, I just got killed. And, uh, and then everything goes to like this pristine, you know, point of light and... Uh, Everything goes away, you know, as far as I mean, I'm not tired anymore. I'm not hungry. You know, the prickly heat's gone and there's no smells. I mean, everything smelled like foot, ass and blood. Right. And uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm on my way to dying. And uh, all of a sudden I start thinking about my wife, you know, because I just had that kid. I'd held, I'd held my son for maybe, you know, 45 minutes. And uh, I'm like, uh, you know, because when you're standing in judgment, the uh, everything that you've done that's bad, you know, all the remorse and the regret is um, it just goes through and in, in, uh, in just moments and uh, flashes. And then I start thinking, oh, man, what about my kid? And all of a sudden, boom, everything powers back up, you know, back in the fight. I remember pushing the helmet back down to stop the stop the bleeding. You're calling in the sit rep. Uh, we had another wounded and because uh, the kids are hitting me on the back of the helmet going do not stop here because the, the, the car's just getting, the Hummer's getting, getting hammered. And, uh, so we, we, we stayed, uh, we got out, uh, I think that happened probably about 2 AM by, uh, by zero six, we'd made it all the way to the, uh, almost to the stadium. Our, our, that truck was gone. So we had to, uh, we had to actually thermite it. And, uh, and then I, I didn't do the Mogadishu mile. I did probably the Mogadishu half mile, so because uh, probably the uh, uh, the the tenth uh, mountain guys you know saw us running and we were all bandaged up at that point. They they threw us on their trucks, and uh, so we didn't have to run all the way to the stadium. So we got a ride, but uh, we got to the stadium and that's where it was just crazy because they had the uh, yeah, they had all, all the kids laid out and there was probably seventy five wounded. I think we had nineteen killed and. Uh, so I got, I got out on one of the first choppers cause I was a head wound. And, uh, so I get to the mash fairly early and uh, you turn all your gear in and, uh, they, they toe tag it. And, uh, so I'm sitting there getting, getting ready for an orderly to, you know, take a look at me and they're running around cause now, now they got the kids coming in with, you know, the splayed open and, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing CPR on, a, on another kid that they're bringing in on a stretcher and, and they're all apologetic. I mean, they're covered in blood. They're like, hey, we'll get to you, Sarge. But, uh, you know, we got to take care of this guy. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You know, do, do your thing. And because uh, I, I don't earlier in the night, I was I was in a little pain. But, you know, by this time in the morning, it's, it's like uh, after coming in off of a hard drunk, you get that second get that second wind. So I'm feeling uh, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling fine. And uh, so I grabbed some betadine scrub from uh, one of the one of the orderlies. I'd go back and I'd, I'd clean up and then I'm looking at my head and I'd go like, yeah, it's, it was just one little, one little entrance wound. 
and uh, and it, it had actually even started to to close up. So I'm like, damn, I I probably got hit by a chunk of concrete coming off the wall. I, I, I'm probably I'm, I'm good. So I went back and uh, got my gear and uh, got on the helicopter. Went back to the to the hangar and uh, went to sleep because I had uh, I had like. 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. talk watch, right? That's always that's always good after a head wound to go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, <laughs> well, that's how smart I was. Yeah, and uh, so so I get up for my uh, 2 a.m. shift, and and as I'm coming off at 10 a.m., the uh, the bags started coming in. So uh, you know the, uh, the and that's when we realized how bad it was because the uh, you know all the all the weapons come in, all the all the kit. And so we'd have to physically, you know, lay it out in the hangar and uh, we'd have to re- disassemble and reassemble all the guns because you know, some of them were uh, you know, missing hand guards. And then, you know, there, there was holes in them. There's the, you know, the, the gas tubes were split, were around and just come come through. And so we, we had to we had to take apart parts and pieces and, and put good guns back together. And then the, the other stuff, you know, goes goes in for turn in. Uh, same thing with the uniforms. I mean, we had to go through all the pockets because. The, uh, you know, for last, you know, effects and, and, and bag that stuff and then burn, burn these fatigues, you know, burn these parts of kit. And so we had to re- reconstitute whatever we could and then pack up all the kids bags. And so you, and that's when it, when it hit us is that, you know, there was like 75, you know, cots there that, uh, that had bags sitting on it. And, uh, it's like, holy shit. And we took a mauling, but, um, and about two days later, I, I think somebody had gotten a care package, uh, and they got these Bart Simpson's Bart Simpson bandages, and so I had a little bandaid on my on my head, a Bart Simpson bandaid, and uh, the doc came over and he goes, "Are you Lamb?" I said, "Yes, sir," and he goes, "You know, you're you know you're AWOL now. You're 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 supposed to be at the hospital," and uh, so well, I I feel fine. He goes, "Yeah," it does, <laughs> and he he goes, "Follow my finger," and so uh, so I started following his finger, and he goes, "That's an entrance wound." He said, "You got to go get a." Uh, you got to go get a CAT scan. And, uh, so I get on the helicopter and they take me back to the, to the mash. And, uh, so the, the docs are coming out they're both younger kids and, uh, they're going, I, we're looking at a dead man. So this, there, there's no reason that you should be alive right now. And they said, we're, we're at, we're looking at a dead, a dead man. I said, man, doc, don't, don't, am I going to die? And, uh, so I just had a kid and, uh, and the one doc, he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I'm afraid so. And uh, you know, I'm like, what? Shit me, how much time do I have? And uh, and the guy goes, he started laughing. He goes, <laughs> he says, we're all going to die. <laughs> Glad he can have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so he, uh, they said, okay, you got to go you know, report over here. And so I, so I stood up and then I, uh, I kind of duck, duck walked and, and fell down. I started flopping like this, and, uh, and they're calling for the crash cart. And the doc's coming over, and he's fixing to do the CPR. And then I opened my eyes. I looked at him. And I said, "Fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> if I can say that on the podcast. No, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I think and this is like the sixth. So that that night, uh, they had mortared the camp. And uh, so I'm laying there in my bunk. I'm going to go on the aircraft the next morning, the launch duel. And uh, they say, hey, your Sergeant Major's here. And I said, no, no, he, he wasn't wounded. 
And uh, they said, no, no, the mortar round just hit the camp. The Sergeant Major's here. So then in comes Jesse Lay. And, uh, and he's butt-ass naked, covered in blood. Because they, they would uh, he was near where the mortar had hit. But most of the explosion went into Matt Ryerson, who was killed. And uh, so he's wearing a lot of mat on him. And, uh, and they're trying to find out, you know, where he's, if he's bleeding. And, and uh, he had some shrapnel in his neck. And they, he, he wouldn't let him use any Novocaine or anything. And uh, they, so they were just, they were pulling the shrapnel out of his neck. And you could just, you could hear the, uh, you know, the, on the forceps, you know, there was kind of teeth. You could hear it kind of scraping on that. And then they ting, 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 put, drop it in the, <laughs> so they, they cleaned him up. And uh, he goes, I'm going back to the hangar. But he didn't have any clothes. And uh, so he looks at me and he goes, Lamb, go get your uniform. And uh, so I bring back my, my uniform. I give it to him. And he was an older guy at the time, Sergeant Major, right? So he couldn't get the pants on, but he could get the jacket on. So he grabbed the first orderly he saw and he goes, give me your pants. <laughs> so, so he gets back to the hangar wearing, uh, wearing uniform pieces, but uh, crazy guy. And then I run into him again in Haiti. So, so you know, in talking to other people that were over there, they, they said something that you've said throughout this in, in all the engagements that you were in. Um, they, they talked about radios again and said that not everyone had a radio and communication was very yeah. poor between the units and stuff that, that it was hard. And then when you talk about bringing the Pakistanis in and there was a language barrier and, yeah. and you're, you're doing all these things. When do you think we will realize, and once again, maybe there may not be an answer, that there are these moving pieces that seem to to come back and haunt us in every single engagement? Every time. Relearn it every time. Need it or not. Yeah. What is... I, I don't know. I, I, I would have to say never. Okay. Um, if you fast forward all the way to, um, I think it's 2015, right? So yeah, when I was at SOCOM as a civilian, the uh, we helped stand up an international... Um, director and uh, so we you know communications is big so we uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff that we had to go through to, to actually because when McRaven rolled in he says I want him in the building I don't want him in a tent out in the parking lot I want him in the building all the buildings are skiff you know they're, they're built for top secret um, so we actually had to sit down with the because uh, uh, at first when I asked the question because I, I, I got pinned to do it and because uh, I was a DIA guy at the time and uh, so when I asked the security peeps, they said, no, we can't do it. So then I go to DIA and I said, uh, they said, no, you can't do it. And I said, well, what, what tells us that we can't do it? I mean, I, I know we, I trust you, you're professional. And they said, well, this uh, intelligence community directive, uh, and, 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 and this, so I, so I had to get all that stuff and lay it out on a big table and study it. And, uh, and, and what it turned out to be was, um, yeah, you can't do it unless you, know, you have locks, doors, walls, vestibules, you know, card key readers i mean if you put in the right the right things in place and so it's just a matter of laying you know laying out the the, the plan the floor plan and with the you know, different colored highlighters and going if we make this a solid wall if we move these cable trays here if we put a camera here we put a card key reader here we put a you know a one hour door here then then if, if we do all this stuff within the skiff then uh and, and we we can and they say, oh yeah if you do that you can do it so, so we ended up doing that they ended up, um, you know, bringing in systems uh, so that the SOCOM, you know, has its own zipper net, right? Secret net. And from the SOCOM secret net, you can hit um, anybody on BICES, which is the, the, the kind of the NATO secret. 
Uh, you can hit um, you can hit our, our five eyes partners, you know, the Australia, Canada, Great Britain, New Zealand. You can hit them. And uh, so, you know, there, there's different firewalls and stuff in place, but from a desktop at SOCOM, you can now talk to all those cats. And, uh, but I, I'm continually surprised at the people that don't know that or don't take the time to do it. You know, when I, when I was over in Korea, we, uh, I, I, and of course, in their defense, they, they didn't get the, you know, they were one of the last ones to get the, hooked into the system all the way out there in, in Korea. And uh, so as I was going through and giving them the class, I said, watch this. You know, we talked to the dude in New Zealand, bam. And so all the, all the people that, um, that are part of that Korean op plan, that are part of the, the, um, the United Nations sending states, generally you can only talk to them if um, when they're on Peninsula and they're on that, you know, the, the ROCUS, the, the Rock US system. But now, you know, from that, from that system. So we're making small strides. But uh, it's just, it seems like we're always in this pickup game. And that's one of the things with the foundation that, that we, we try to do too, is keep that network warm and keep those, those lines of communication open. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about it at, at, at the end of what we're doing because I, I think it's important to talk about it at the end because how you have made it possible, just like I said to Stu, to step into a ton of countries and be ready to go on the ground is is absolutely amazing with the organization. I wanted to ask you one more thing about Gothic Serpent. Um, with the recent upgrades of the awards that were given out and the medals that were given out, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think it's um, any of the, there's there's always I won't say politics, but um, there, there, it, there's always a degree of that. I mean, you second guess. You see, you see guys do you know valorous acts that um but then you're, you you say well you know we don't want to give out too many or or they'll say hey we can only give out x number of these or x number of those i mean so going into it they, they've they've um hey we did get two medals of honor so so i think there was a it was it was a long time coming i, I think when uh, when you sit back and because you, you don't hear all the stories because i mean some of the stories that uh, you'll, you'll hear from a guy because he, he survived and he's in the airplane hangar and uh, but you not might not hear the the, the story from the kid that got medevac to launch duel and then further further down to biloxi or all the way to walter reed i mean those stories don't come out till later and if a lot of those things had already been submitted then uh and, and they, you know, they take a good hard look at it so I, I think and i saw a lot of them too and it was it was yeah why why didn't we see this in the beginning and then the reason was is because you know there was probably uh, they didn't want to go overkill because there has been times where um you know, like in grenada for example that you guys would run down there, run off the tailgate, run back on, and uh, come back and got the, got their uh, got their combat award. And uh, so a lot of times, soft does not want to be that those guys. You know, they don't they want to be don't want to be seen as that. And so they'll actually um, be a little stingy uh, on the awards. But uh, but I'm I'm glad the guys got uh, got recognized. I uh, I I think that a lot of people talking about this specifically either know about the movie or the book they've never really and it, by no fault of their own have never really talked to someone that was on the ground and don't understand how uh this was a devastating conflict i mean it, it like you said i mean there was so much going on in such a small amount of time uh just looking at, at just you being there and everything that happened to you um, and I, I was the ops guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and 
yeah, and the doctor told you you were going to die. So, yeah. uh, you know, but when we talk about that, it, it brings up another question about, once again, the media and movies and things like that. Do you think they hurt or they help tell these stories? I, I think it's, 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 I think it's a little of both. I mean, sometimes the, um, because they have to have a canon, right? And uh, they have to have a script and they have to have the, the ability to ca capture, you know, like, like when Bowden wrote his book, he would, uh, he would send out a chapter and he'd surf it out. And then, and then uh, guys would be able to say, yeah, it didn't happen exactly like this. It happened a little, you know, it, uh, it wasn't this guy, it was the other guy that did that. And uh, so as they're getting ready to make the movie, they, uh, they told a bunch of guys, you know, me being one of them, they say, hey, you're, you're not going to be in the movie, but uh, some of the things you said and did will be in the movie, but we're going to have, um, you know, in, in order for, for them to catch the storyline, they be in the audience to catch the storyline says, you know, it's all a bunch of white guys with no hair. So, uh, you know, they all look the same and, uh, it's, it's, it's hard for them to, to, to follow, you know, who's doing what. So we'll have like about four to six main characters and, uh, and then they'll have some composite characters that will do, uh, that will do different things. And, uh, so the one guy that, um, uh, the one guy that played, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the main stars, he was like a, uh, he was like a composite character. So, uh, so a lot of this. Oh, stuff okay. So do. you're talking about the guy that played, um, and I cannot think, <laughs> I can see the guy's face and I can't, I know what you're talking about. The, the played the yeah, staff sergeant ever, uh, uh, I'm trying to think who that was. Uh, I, I cannot yeah, he played, remember. He played in Troy. I think he played in, uh, he played in that, uh, the Israeli movie there for the Olympics. Oh, uh, uh, you're, you're talking about the guy that played Hoot. Hoot. Yeah. 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 So uh, Carl was, Urban. Yeah. So, so he, um, he, there was a lot of stuff that he did that was composite that, um, you know, when, when the, this, this is my safety, you know, that was this guy that said that, you know, the, Hey, clean the, clean the trucks out. It was that guy that said that it was, you know, so some of those different things that he did was, um, you know, it was, was composite and then they had to condense everything. So, so it, it, it depends on the movie. I, I think they, um, a lot of movies will do justice if they just if they just concentrate on the on the hardship, you know the the the, the valorous nature of the of the way those kids fought. You know, and the I, I like it when they uh, when they have them clown around as well because that uh, that's that's exactly what it's like. You know, living four hundred guys in a hangar. And, uh, yeah, uh, I I there. There seems to be, you know, I, I think, like you said, it can go either way. It, you have people that that have, I guess the word would be an agenda with these. True. And, and then you have some that, that are just trying to tell a story. Um, and, and, it, and it goes back and forth, you know, a lot of people, because like you talked about when, when you were talking about Vietnam and you were talking about the heroin and different things like that. A lot of those movies from that era that talk about it, when you talk about Platoon, uh, especially like Platoon, where they talk about every time they went back into the rear, they were smoking dope and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, 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 I can agree with you on that. But it's always great to get a perspective of whether, you, you know, because some people shy away from them completely. They don't want anything to do with them. They haven't read the book. They haven't watched the movie. They don't want anything to do with it. Guys from the military that maybe were a part of it or new people that were part of it that just don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. And so, 
you know, um, but it's definitely, you know, once again, like I said about your career, as we move through it, you have a kid and you're loading up and headed there. Like <laughs> you go back, you're the operations sergeant and then this, and it's, it's that whole thing again, where, uh, you know, is it, is it the assignment you're taking? Is it, is it just a little bit of both again, just, you know, where you're thrust into that position? Yeah. Because when I, um, as I was getting ready to leave, um, third Ranger battalion, they were cranking up for Haiti. And, uh, and I remember, um, going to, uh, I think we went to Avon park down here in Florida and, uh, we had, uh, so the, the, the one thing that you know, people may or may not know about the U S you know, especially the, the soft guys is that there's a, there's a battle plan for almost everything. And, and a lot of times it, it, it starts early, like blue spoon for, for Panama started two years out and, uh, it, it turned into just cause. So the same thing with Haiti, you know, the, uh, that Haiti was, was kind of a slow boil. They knew they were going to have to do it. And, and actually, you know, Haiti, Haiti starts back in Suriname and, uh, you know, years ago where the, the, I think it was a sergeant in the Surinamese army takes over in a coup and, uh, Suriname's this old kind of Dutch colony. It's, uh, it's down there in Paramaribo, I think is the, 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 but you know, the, there's still a lot of trade back and forth between, you know, the, between the Dutch and, and, and South America. And uh, so we had gone into in there and we built um, airfields because they had aluminum. And the, the, there was during World War II was the, we had an air that flew an air cap over the Alcoa aluminum. And so those airfields are still there. So this dude starts running drugs. So he's got, he's got, um, so we go down there to take a look at it and say, okay, if, if we, uh, if he doesn't leave, we're going to ask him to leave. If he doesn't leave and we're going to go make him leave. And uh, so we're looking at the HLZs, the helicopter landing zones, how we can get in. You know, and uh, finally the, the, the drugs are going towards Europe. So we don't care. Right. We just tell the Europeans it's now their problem. And, uh, but then they found out that, okay, the drugs are going into Europe and then they're coming back to New York. Now we care again. But uh, so so those plans are are all over, and uh, so as you look at Haiti, you know, they're just they're just waiting for Haiti to uh, if it, if it if it goes in a coup and it starts going bad, then then what are we going to do about it? And uh, so we had done, um, and they do it, they come up with the plan and then they rehearse it. So I remember the last time, uh, well, I went to Avon Park, and it's late at night and it's just starting to get dark. And now Avon Park is coming alive and you see the crew chiefs out there and they're getting the engines started and you see the, the combat controllers and their, their bikes, they come rolling up and uh, you see the, the PJs, the, the, the pair of jumpers, you know, for the, the medics, they come rolling up with their aid wagons. You see the, um, the Rangers come marching up and they're, uh, you know, they got their parachutes cause they're going to be the, the, the jump clearing team. And, uh, and they're just, they're assembling the can of whoop ass. And I'm just sitting, I'm just sitting there off to the side, just watching it all. And, uh, you know, so from, from the, the first time we did it in uh, desert one to, to now, as we're getting ready to go into Haiti and uh, just looking at them assembling that whoop ass. And I'm thinking, my God, there's no other nation on planet earth that can, that can assemble this type of force 
you know, with this lethality, with this reach and these capabilities. And, and this, you know, that formation right there is anywhere in the world that uh, for as long as we care to hold it. And uh, it, it was just, it was kind of neat. It was like, um, like, wow, man, we have come a long, long way. And, uh, but, but Haiti was, uh, so I was supposed to go, I was actually on orders to go to third group and, uh, but they, they suspended my order so that I could do the Haiti thing. But then we, we had just, we had just finished our last jump master personnel inspection, you know, where all the Rangers are rigged and you go through the inspection to make sure all right, you're, you're good, sit down and, uh, you know, next stop Haiti and the, you know, the engines are turning. It's all you know, the other, the, the planes closed up and then all of a sudden we stopped taxiing the engine shut shut down the ramp drops and uh and they're like hey we're on a, like a 48 hour hold uh because they're gonna they're gonna they're doing negotiating and uh, so they're gonna negotiate for uh for the dude to take uh take the money and and, and run to france or run to uh spain i think it was and so right at that moment they came to me and said hey rick man we we can't hold you here any longer you gotta you got to go uh, to third group. And so I PCS the third group. We drive in. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to make sure I got this right. You're on a plane and they tell you, you know what? We're on a hold for 48 hours. We can't hold you for those two days. You got to get out of here. And- oh, oh, no. So, so they had already called the mission. So we're on a 48 hour hold. And, uh, and then once, once you start re-rigging the, the, the parachutes, right. Turn it back into the riggers. You know, you're not going anywhere. And, uh, so at that point, you know, the 48 hours turned into, hey, they're going to negotiate. Uh, it'll probably be a, a, a soft landing or a, a, it's not a forced entry anymore. Right. We're just, we're just going to walk in it. So, yeah. So within that, probably three to five days, because uh, you know, I, I should have left, but they were just they were keeping me around to let me get my, my jump on. All right. And, uh, so, I, I yeah, we just pack up. We go to uh, go to Bragg. We drive to Bragg. And so I get there and third group's already gone. And uh, they're down in Haiti. And, uh, so we, I, I drop, I drop mom off at our new house and go to Haiti. <laughs> you were getting there one way or the other. Exactly. A- anything, the, anything. By that time, the baby's almost two, right? So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, busy. there's nothing I can do. <laughs> right. That, uh, I guess you're, you're on a little better, uh, footing with that one. So anything different about this one or are you mainly looking at it as a, a peacekeeping mission? And, and I mean, peacekeeping in the most basic peacekeeping way. Yes, it was, um, it was odd because the, the missions that you, it, it was a forced entry operation where you, you're going to go in and you're taking down these, I mean, you're gonna, first you're going to bomb the place and then you're going to take down the, you know, the, take into custody anybody that's uh, still living. And, uh, but now we got requested to come in. So, uh, so we're, we're sniffing each other out because, you know, these are guys that we would have probably killed, um, you know, two weeks earlier, but now we're not, they know that. And plus the, the, the people hate them. And, uh, we would have formations out. Uh, we, we took over a little concern and, uh, no electricity, no running water, no toilets. And, um, so we would have formation every day to see you know, just make sure we had everybody and uh they we would stand them in formation and then all the people would come out the haitians the population they'd stand there and they'd look and uh, we asked them what, what, what are you guys looking at and they said we, we we thought you were lining them up to shoot them and we wanted to see you shoot them 
And that's that's when we knew we had issues with uh, you know some image issues, right? Because they, they have some good people there that uh, you know, that wanted to do right. And, uh, so we we went to the mayor, and uh, we said, "Do you have a copy of the Constitution that we can borrow?" And because uh, we want to translate it from uh, you know Haitian Creole to uh, to English. And so we sat down and we did, we translated the Haitian Constitution, and we figured out how their government was supposed to run. And they would have <clears throat> they would have elected officials that were kind of out in the hinterlands, and they would uh, they would take the grievances, you know, in their local meetings, and then they'd bring that together in a. In a uh, you know, we were down in, in Lakai, our district, and so they bring it there, and uh, but they would just argue; they couldn't get anything done. So uh, so we're like, so we we went on the road, and we actually taught, you know, class, and uh, this is this is who you are. You ran because you wanted to make a difference. And uh, this is what you need to do. And so we teach them how to how to run an agenda, how to do, you know, Robert's rules of orders, how to uh, we're only going to cut, you know, focus on three things. These are the five problems that we see. So if they fall within these, uh, if these three things fall within these five, these five problems, then uh, and, and generally it was just Mazov's hierarchy needs kind of thing. He was, uh, you know, and, and everybody that needs that food, story. safety and shelter. Well, and, and, and you know, there was uh, that there's a story to that, too, because when we first rolled in. And we're we're in the butt sniffing phase, and uh, they were telling us. You know, we we rang the phone and said, "Hey, what do, what are we supposed to do?" And they're like, "Foster democracy." And, uh, we're like, "Okay, foster democracy." And then what what do you what they say? They said foster democracy. We're like, "What the hell? Call them back. Tell them what does that mean?" And uh, so one of the kids, uh, one of my guys, a uh, young sergeant E five, because third group was young in those days. They had just stood them up. So they had a lot of a lot of kids that were had just come out of the Q course, and uh, so one of them was my medic, and he had been a truck mechanic prior to going to selection assessment, and now he's a, now he's a medic, and uh, which that plays into the story later. But so so Piaz goes, uh, he goes, Sergeant, it, it, it's it's not that tough. He goes, it's just this Mazov's hierarchy of needs thing, and we're all like, Ross Rock. You're know, talking like Scooby Doo, raw, raw. <laughs> what are you trying to tell us here? So he goes, yeah. He says, you know, right now they're scared. He said, um, he said, so we we got to provide security for them. And once we provide security, he said, then they're going to realize, damn, it's raining. I, I need to fix my roof. And he said, they need some kind of shelter. And then he's going to say, then they're going to get hungry because you know, the markets aren't open, and we got to. And he said, so we just got to start doing that. And so once we figured that out, that's when we went to the went to the uh, the mayor. Got the constitution, laid that out, and uh, started actually teaching you know how, them how to run their government. And it was just and they'd, they'd watch us do it, and we'd watch them do it. And, uh, and we re, we re, um, we got the park open, had a little grand opening there the, uh, by just you know people doing you know civic stuff, um, cleaning up. And we got the the so where, where we finally broke the code was uh, we went up because we had no power. And uh, we said, okay, how do they get power here? There was a, like a, a station with three generators, and then there was a there was a turbine at, at, uh, on one of the dams. And so there wasn't much we could do for the turbine. But you know, Piot, being a former you know mechanic, he says, I I can get one of these things going. He says, if I get parts from from these other two, he says, I know I can get this this third one going. And he said, then we just order parts. You know, we got to figure out if the op fund, if we can buy them, or how, how that gets there, but. He said, but we can't give them power 24 hours a day, but we can give them like, you know, maybe 10 hours. And uh, so we had a meeting. So one of our meetings, we said, we, we think we can get you about 10 hours. 
and uh, we can get you six and four, you know, we can give you five and five, and uh, we can give you, uh, you know, three, three and four, but we, can, we, we can't give it, you know, because this thing's going to have to rest. And so, you know, you tell us when you want your electricity. And, and this is where the code, they broke the code, is that uh, they wanted early in the morning where they get their kids up and give them a breakfast. And they wanted it uh, at night when they could uh, do laundry and, um, and the kids could study. And just were like, oh, it's the kids. I mean, duh, right? And uh, so, so we, we, we started providing electricity, you know, for the kids. So we decided we better look at the schools. And all the schools were, were trash. So we started rebuilding the schools. And then you get some of the, uh, the relief organizations to get the, the new books and build desks and stuff. And, and once we started taking care of the kids, then we could do, man, we had, we had people, informants for, for days. You know, people telling us about, you know, if, if this is going to happen or that's going to happen or, hey, watch these guys. I mean, once we, we, we actually, they knew that we cared about their kids. And uh, so, and the mayor, I mean, it, uh, she loved us. So we, we had a, we had one of the teams got in trouble and I can't remember what it was they did. And, uh, but it got the ire of uh, the USASOC commander, the three-star general, uh, General Scott. And he was a ranger guy. Right. So he wasn't real. He, he, he didn't he didn't not like SF, but he uh, he didn't see the utility in him. And uh, so so he was coming down. And uh, so they called me and they said, Lab, you got him. Speak Ranger to him. Get him in, get him out, you know, show him what you guys are doing and uh, and uh, just, just make him happy. And but Jesse Lay, I don't know if you remember him, the Sergeant Major from 3rd Ranger Battalion. He's now got 10th Mountain Division. So he's sitting in Port-au-Prince. And I got in to see him and uh, said, hey, you know, you guys are supposed to be our quick reaction force, but we've never seen you. We've ne you've never seen us. So how about give me like a platoon of guys, you know, you can fly them down and, uh, and, and we'll walk them through all the different uh, helicopter landing zones. We'll show them all the routes in and out. We'll show them we'd moved into a, a, another building that we could defend and uh, said, you can we'll bring them to, to our building. You know where our break in the wire is, you know, for our for our escape routes. And you can help us do the uh, security patrols. I said, we, we've got a range down there and uh, we got plenty of ammo. So you know, we'll have one squad doing security patrols, one squad doing the range. Uh, we'll give one squad a day off at the beach because uh, you know, there was a beach house. It didn't have a roof or anything, but uh, you it's a beach house. A media, it was a beach house, right? <laughs> so uh, so we, uh, he said, okay, yeah. So, so we, we got up a tune. So it just happened when Scott came down that we had uh, the recon platoon because they had their own uh, Humvee and they had motorcycles. And uh, so we were able to pick up Scott at the, uh, at the airfield. We had kids on motorcycles, you know, that are doing the, doing the, you know, hitting the intersections and, you know, running the, we had another cat team, you know, the crisis action team that uh, it would, 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 would shield him in case he needed, uh, he needed assistance. And so you know, we had, we had a nice uh, operations uh, shed in, in our, in our place. So we, uh, we told him everything that we were doing and then we took him to go see the mayor. And, uh, so everything's going swimmingly, you know, we're just very professional and, uh, we're treating him like, like, like the, the VIP that he was. And, uh, so he's up talking to the mayor and I'm down pulling security in the street. And we had, we'd made a conscious decision to not put concertina wire out. So we didn't want any of the people to get caught in it. So, but that formed a crowd. And so now the crowd has got us pinned up against the buildings and, uh, and the vehicles can't move. You know, there's like 300 people in the street because they're wondering, you know, what's up with the convoy. 
And uh, so my sergeant major's up in the uh, second deck, and he's 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 giving me the, you better get these people out of here. And uh, so I'm like, what do you want me to do? Shoot them? And he's like, no, 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 no. And uh, he said, get them out of here, move them. And, uh, so the only thing I could think of was to hop up on the uh, hood of the Humvee and uh, ask the crowd, because my, my, my Haitian speaker was up up with the mayor. And so I didn't have anybody that spoke either French or Creole down with me, but I, I was in seventh group in Panama. So I knew a little bit of Spanish. So in Spanish, I asked somebody in the crowd who speaks Spanish. You know, Dom Rep is right next door. So chances are high, right? And uh, so one kid raised his hand and I said, okay, ask them uh, if they've ever seen a white man dance. And uh, the crowd just starts going crazy. And, uh, and then they're, now they're singing. And so I'm up on the Humvee and I'm in full kit and I'm, I'm dancing and uh, my rifle and stuff. And I'm doing the, pulling on my power moves and, uh, and they're just laughing. I mean, it's going, they're going crazy. And uh, so now the Sergeant Major's really mad. And uh, so he's, he's, he's telling me, get him out of here. So I, I said, stop, stop, stop. I said, I, I can't do any power moves here. You know, it's just, you just get the same old stuff. I said, but I can do some power moves over in the park that we had just finished rebuilding. They had a big old, uh, like a, one of those amphitheater things made out of concrete. And uh, so we just pied pipered them over to the park. And then we had a dance dance uh, revolution. And uh, so I was I was up dancing on a table and then some kid came up and he took the, the hand off from me. And I mean, he could he could actually seriously break dance. I mean, he was spinning on his head and he was you know doing all the doing all the moves and, and he put it back to me. And I'm like exhausted at this point. And uh, so the convoy, but they could the convoy can clear and they could come out. And I, I, I was getting ready to go run over to uh, to get in the convoy. But uh, they dropped one of the one of the 10th Mountain kids off. And uh, he came over. and said, "I'm your uh, security guy," and then they drove away. And in the uh, in the the front vehicle was uh, was you know Scott with this big old shit eating grin on his face, and uh, and he gave me a note later. And he goes, uh, he goes, Rick, I uh, I now understand what special forces does. And uh, yep, not, we did, we didn't fire a shot down there. Well, and, and, you know, and you said he wasn't a special forces guy. So just being able to get that from him is, is a pretty good thing. Oh yeah. And, and, and he, he's a good man. He's just, uh, you know, there's some people that, that use hammers and some people use screwdrivers. So that's, that's true. So you leave there, you go to the SAR major Academy, you get some break time. And I think that's about all we need to talk about that. It's good for your family. Your kids, what yeah. three now? Yeah, I, yeah, it's uh, gosh, what was that? Yeah, he's about three or four. Yeah, so we're looking like to, uh, 98, 99. To it was 99, yeah, yeah. So, so he might be six, he, he might be getting ready to go to uh, kindergarten. I think he, I think he goes to kindergarten. I remember those tears, yeah, <laughs> little, little, little man going off to school. <laughs> So that was me crying, not him. <laughs> yeah, I. You know what? I didn't want to point that out, but but I know. So you you go over Tinsel Special Forces. Uh, you're over in Germany, uh, Joint Endeavor, and this seems like um, you still have enduring freedom, Iraqi freedom, but you're you're starting to see uh, a little bit of a change now with Joint Endeavor. I'm thinking it's more of it's not a peacekeeping mission because there there's a lot of different um, 
there's a lot of different things at play in Bosnia. And I've talked to guys that were special forces, Delta, Bosnia, and they, they all have a different uh, kind of take on it. Um, but there was a lot of stuff going on in Bosnia that I, I don't think people are aware of with the war crimes and, and just a lot of different things. So how did you approach this one? Yeah, for, for that one, the, um, the, like I said, the, the first of the 10th had been over there in Germany for, uh, since the fifties. And, uh, so they were, they were a great outfit. I mean, they, they did, um, you know, urban combat was, was kind of their thing. That's the mission that they did. And, uh, so a lot of times they would, um, they would roll in, uh, these big Mercedes vans, they were bread trucks. So they'd have all their, their stuff packed in there. So it's almost like yeah, they were using SWAT tactics because of the fact that they're rolling in cities for the most part or in, uh, in you know, urban areas. And so I asked them, I said, do you guys have any, because I'm, I'm just coming out of Somalia, right? And uh, I said, did you guys, um, do you guys ever use tactical vehicles? They said, yeah, we got like six of them over here, but uh, they won't they won't let us cut them up. And so we went down there and they had like six, you know, hard shell Hummers. And uh, I said, well, who's telling you that they can't cut them up? They said, well, you guys are. I said, I'm not telling you. I said, if you can get them back to the to serviceability before we have to turn them in. I said, you cut them up. And uh, I said, get it to where you need it. And uh, that started the chop shop. And uh, there, there's a Mercedes dealer there right there in, uh, in Stuttgart. And so they would take these trucks down to the Mercedes guys, you know, the plant. And, uh, and they started looking at it like, you know, German engineering, you know, the center, center of balance. And I mean, they had, they had running boards on the thing and they had, they'd, uh, put, uh, reinforce the hood so that you could still get airflow, but you could walk on it. I mean, they had gun mounts, they had swing arm mounts. And I mean, they had some nice classy tactical vehicles after that, but it was the, that was, we started focusing more on tactical um, you know, to, with the, with the tactical trucks than the, than the urban trucks. And, uh, and, and that, that helped us when we got into, got into Bosnia because the mission changed to, uh, go out and grab personnel that were indicted for war crimes. And, uh, and that was the, yeah, the Pifwick stuff. And, uh, but, but just a boon time for the company because it, you know, it, it the guys are forward deployed and you're, you're in your spot. And, uh, so you had to, you had to use your intelligence and uh, so you had to learn the Intel cycle and all the different ints and uh, you know, how all that operated. And then you had to, to bring that information and form intelligence and then actually you know, do your reconnaissance to, to actually find the guys, you know, the, you know using the human informants, you know, the spot, assess, recruit, and, uh, and go out and then actually you know, grab these guys. And uh, you'd have to do the, the pattern of life on them because you, you don't want to go in there. You don't want to kill innocents and you don't want to get the wrong guy. And, uh, so you had to, uh, you know, you're working within some, some pretty, pretty slim authorities. Yeah. And, uh, so, so actually, you know, doing the, doing the, the pattern of life and capturing them when they're the most vulnerable. And then, uh, we take them to the airfield and inside the airfield, there was, uh, they had an old ammunition bunker. And then inside that ammunition bunker, they had built just a, a plywood room and it had a cot in it. And, uh, so we had like, uh, four of the biggest dudes that you ever saw in your life that were the, the the guards and, um, and they weren't armed. So, you know, once you get the guy in there and, uh, you know, you clean them up 
and then they they bring in the film crew to, to to film you know front and rear to make sure that there was no marks or anything on him and uh and then they give him a jumpsuit and a uh and an mre and he just sit there on the cot with these these four big dudes just looking at him from the corners and uh and then they cut the lights and then you hear the crying start I mean, every every one of these these mean asses were just. I mean, they were weeping, and then and you, it, it, we usually had to keep them for about a day or so until the until we put them on a bird and take them to the Hague. And, and uh, but just a an awesome company. And I remember, uh, I remember. So this is ninety ninety eight ninety nine, right? 2000. Yeah, ninety eight ninety. Uh, no, I'm sorry, ninety nine two thousand yeah. to two thousand one. Yeah, and so the. Uh, so we we did that mission and then uh, of course we, you know we, the training we, we worked a lot with the poles a um, little bit with the israelis um a lot of the a lot of the the, Ger- the germans i mean we we actually had germans that would sit in our training events and then we would sit in their training events so we worked a lot with the with the local guys and it was just a it was a great time but then when the towers fell and uh you know everybody wants to get their gun on and uh, so then everybody was like it, you know germany used to be the place to be but now everybody want to be in fifth group, and uh, so they're they're like, man, we need to get in a fight. We need to. And I remember I remember laughing and just telling them, hey, wait, you wait your turn, wait. You know that, that uh, every five years there's a dust up, and uh, so your 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 time will come. And and they finally got rotated in the stack. It was after I I left, but uh, but they did good. I was proud of them. Well, you so you're was- a sergeant major at this time now. Yes. Yep. Uh, and so 2001 happens, uh, and during Freedom Now, you were in Djibouti though, for well, no, actually, so so I'm uh, when when the towers fall, so so here's the, so in 2000, I'm uh, actually it was two yeah it was yeah 2000, I put in paperwork to retire. Okay. And um, I'm going to retire in Germany, and uh, yeah, I figured I'd had enough. I'd done everything I wanted to do. And, uh, so I'm going to retire in Germany. I'm going to be the uh, the assistant or the deputy director for the Normandy Cemetery right there in Coville. And uh, they usually have a, a former uh, officer and a former enlisted guy who are the, the director and deputy director of all the different uh, cemeteries around uh, for the Battle, American Battle Monuments Commission. Okay. So I had, uh, I had interviewed with uh, General Lazinski, old ranger guy who had the American Battle Monuments Commission. And, uh, and I got the job there at Coville. And uh, we went up and we looked at the house and because you live right there on the on the garden, there's a copse of trees and then you got the got the garden. And uh, and my wife, you little Korean lady. So she's uh, she's like, Joggy, there's uh, there's going to be a lot of ghosts on here. I don't know if I can live on the cemetery. And uh, so I said, baby, it's okay. They're they're all GIs. And uh, she said, yeah, but they they died a a violent death. And I said, but it's okay. I said, here's what I'll do. I'll get the first day when I report in, I'll, I'll get my uniform on, I'll put my green beret on, and I'll have a formation. I'll just say, all you dead people, I want you in the street now. And uh, we'll form them up. And then, you know, I'll yell at them because tell them they're moving slow and put, put some curse words in there. And, uh, and then I'll just tell them this side of the road is for the living. This side of the road over here is for the dead. If I catch any of you dead over here on the, on the living, I'm going to smoke you until you die a second death. And, uh, and I said, I'll just yell at them. Tell them, give them the rules. And uh, she goes, will that work? I said, yeah, it works. You know, when the Sergeant Major gets, gets angry, it, it works. So she goes, okay, if you do that, then I can live here. And uh, I was supposed to retire one October. 
and uh, then the towers fell. And uh, so I got stop lost and then ended up, um, since my replacement had already come in, then uh, I ended up going to Djibouti to stand up um, the JTF HOA. Because Rumsfeld had a vision that uh, you would have these little soft task forces um, strategically placed around the planet in the, in the areas to, to stop the, the spread. And uh, so we, we, uh, we set up in Djibouti and our primary focus was, um, was you know, what eventually turned into Al-Qaeda East Africa. And uh, so Yemen and Somalia were the, were the two focuses for the, for the task force there in Djibouti. Again, now, it was just to stop the spread of uh, radical Islam. Yeah. Now, I, I want to go back real quick. Um, we laugh about your wife saying that, but that's important in her culture, correct? I mean, that's oh, yeah, a, yeah, that's a yeah. serious thing. Like, I want people to understand, like, she wasn't joking around. That's a serious thing in her culture. Oh, that's, that's a showstopper, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and definitely a violent, because, <laughs> well, because she mentioned violent death. So, I mean, that's a that's like a real thing you had to contend with. I know people might laugh and stuff, but I was thinking the whole time, like, she wasn't bullshit, and she was telling oh, no. him for real. <laughs> so, uh, with, with Djibouti and everything, I just wanted to point that out, because I started thinking about it, as you said, and I'm like, man, she was being serious with him. <laughs> But with Djibouti, with uh, enduring freedom, are you're you're at the? I don't want to say you're at the end of your career, but you kind of are because you've already decided you're going to retire. You've stop lost. Um, what is going through your head now, though? Because you see this, you think, I mean, this is the the kickoff. This is this is well. I'm sure you couldn't tell then that 20 years later we would still be in the same place, but. You had to be thinking something like this is the future of warfare. This is where the world's kind of going. These these guerrilla attacks on the United States in other countries. It was happening all over Europe. This is going to go on for a while. These guys are not centralized. They're way decentralized, and it's hard to break up these groups. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of it, too, is like, what is going on? Where did this come from? Right. Because uh, generally you don't study it. And uh, or at least I hadn't up to that point, and uh, but to see how how deep that ran, you know, the um, and where did this come from, and so so actually taking that safe haven from people that that was probably the best way to do it, you know. Rumsfeld he actually came to visit, and uh, he we we were we were just on a little demining camp. It had been a fifth group demining camp for years, and uh, so. Once we got on there, and our task force was fairly small, and we had uh, we had we had an army you know, uh, company, Green Berets, and then uh, we had a uh, I think four choppers out of AFSOC, and then we had uh, a Navy SEAL uh, detachment. So and it was, and then the, the log to go along with it. So we were uh, we were we were a decent, you know, we were a formidable force, but uh, they 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 actually sent um, more logistics and put more logistics on top of us. And uh, so we got that post got kind of big, and I think it was Fifth Corps coming out of Germany, and uh, so we had a we had a colonel and then a, a sergeant major that kind of ran the the, the post, and uh, but when stuff like that falls in, I mean, then that's when the PXs show up and the you know the the, the reflective belts come out and the, you know, the barbershop <laughs> goes in and the yeah. speed limit signs and, right and the uh, you know the, the you can't have it goes from uh, uh, the wild, wild west to Connecticut. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> so the uh, 
and the guy was a nice guy. I mean, he was just, he's, he's a sergeant major and that's what in his, on his tribe, that's what sergeant majors do. So the, uh, so one day he comes to me and he goes, Hey, um, he says, I need everybody in the same uniform at the chow hall. And I said, well, I got guys from four different services here. And, uh, and he goes, well, yeah, we can get them all in the same uniform. Can't you? And I said, no, cause they had different uniforms and, uh, and Navy guys wear this color and army guys wear that color. And, uh, so he goes, well, they're going to have to all be in the same uniform. I said, you know what? I said, it, it, as luck would have it, I was coming to see you. And uh, you know, we're, we're going into isolation. And isolation is when uh, you know, we go on to our special forces camp, we close all the gates, and we post guards because we're going on a secret mission that nobody else can go know about. So it's OPSEC. So you're going to have to bring food to us. And uh, I was just coming to tell you. And uh, so <laughs> he did that for about a week. And uh, he goes, this is about the chow hall, isn't it? I said, it could be. <laughs> he goes, all right, they can just make sure the uniforms are clean. But uh, so, you know, so those, those games started. But uh, so Rumsfeld rolls in and uh, he goes, how many people do you have here? So I told him, you know, task force. And uh, he goes, now, how many do you really have here? I said, okay, with the mechanics and the, and the, and the you know, he goes, this many. And he goes, well, how many do you really have? I said, okay, all right. If you have, and, uh, and so I said, everybody, I said, if you got the fifth court guys, if you got the PX, if you got the barbers, you got all this other stuff. I said, we got this many. He goes, don't you think that's excessive? I said, yes, sir. I do. Cause we're used to having a staff sergeant come into a place with a, with a bag of money. And, uh, and I said, yeah, we were probably fine before all this stuff showed up, be honest with you. And, uh, but that was his vision was just these small groups. And uh, so I, I don't think that even he thought that stuff was going to get as big as it did. Yeah, well, but you you speak to the truth of bureaucracy. That's yep. exactly what it is from this idea of these small, simple little out, outposts is technically what they are. That's what he wanted. He wanted Fort yeah. Apache. Yeah. Small little outposts to, to do what they got to do. Like you said, an E6 with a bag of money to let's bring in everybody when it's not needed. But once again, you see the vision of people that aren't there and people of the vision that are there. And there is a, there is a, systematic disconnect somewhere in there. And we've talked about it time after time after time during this conversation, just in different engagements. Yeah. And I but don't you know, know we, that, I don't know that we'll ever go past that. I, I, I don't either. I mean, it wouldn't, uh, so when he rolled in, I, I thought he was coming to see us, you know, and maybe that was just my naivete. And uh, so I had all the guys out on the, uh, the airfield and, uh, you know, in, in their stuff to, to meet the boss. And uh, so then I find out that, uh, you know, the colonel and the sergeant major, they go, hey, listen, um, uh, we're going to take him around to see the new tents that we just put up and the, the, the water purification place that we put up. And we're going to go over to see this. And, and, uh, and we, we probably won't have time to get down to the tarmac, and which, which, you know, sucks because all the guys are in their kit and they're out there sweating their asses off. And uh, so I'm like, OK, so, so I, was, I was the uh, since I was the task force sergeant major. I, uh, I got the brief. And, uh, so I said, uh, I, I stood there and I said, you know, sir, I'm, uh, I'm from Iowa. And he looks at me, you know, he gets this quizzical look. And I said, that, that Sergeant major back there, he's from Iowa. And that master Sergeant over there in the corner, he's from Iowa as well. I said, so we, you got three Iowa boys here. And he goes, yeah, Rumsfeld, he's, he's very curt. He goes, what, what significance is that? 
And I said, well, I want to know why they got the probably the only three Republicans in Iowa and we're sitting here in Africa. I said, number one. I said, number two, the uh, being from Iowa, we love all things wrestling. And uh, he goes, I wrestled. He said, I wrestled in the academy. I said, no, I read your bio. And he goes, I, I, I got a pair of sweats from Dan Gable, who was a famous, you know, Iowa Olympian wrestler back in the day. And I said, well, I hope you watched him. You know, he laughed. And I said, we, I said, we have a wrestling team right here on the, on the base. And he goes, seriously? And I said, yeah, we, we wrestle every day. I said, was, uh, so we got, you know, we got a wrestling gym down there. And, uh, in fact, the, they, they call you the coach. And he goes, well, I'd like to meet the team. That's what I'd like to take you down to meet him. And he's, well, let's go. <laughs> Always. So, so then we, then we had all the pictures with Rummy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you got to make it work for you. You know what I mean? So, uh, we do. I, I just want to talk one real quick thing about the final Iraqi freedom. Uh, you are working with National Guard for surrender operations, correct? Yeah. So, so, so I'm in Djibouti, and I get a phone call, and they say, "Hey, pack your bags. Uh, there's going to be an inter-theater transport come pick you up, and uh, we're going to accept." You know, when when I had put in my retirement paperwork, I had turned down. Um, um, uh, you, there, there, you have sergeant major, and then you have command sergeant major. Right. So I turned down command sergeant major in, in, and retired. So they pinned me to go to Djibouti, and uh, and then they said, "Okay, you're going to take over first battalion, fifth group. Uh, they're already in Jordan, and uh, you'll just link up with them in Jordan, and then uh, we'll roll into because uh, you know I can't remember it was something something Victor was the uh, was the the Iraqi plan. So they're already starting to plan it. And so I, I just got on the bird and went went over to uh, to Jordan, and then I link up with uh, with first of the fifth. And again, it's uh, what a group, awesome group. I mean, they had ve- they had had vehicles for a while, so I mean, they had it down to an art. They had, they had two and a half ton and five ton. They called them war pigs because all the guns that were on them. But uh, they uh, that's they were just like these elephants of the desert that would have all their supply on it. And all the riggers back in the rear would would rig uh, water, ammunition, you know, anything they needed and uh based on what the what they called for they'd uh they'd fly over the desert drop these bundles out and the war pigs would go out there and they had little cranes on them and they'd uh, they'd get everything else and so so they, they always had one oda one uh, detachment of sf guys that would pull security and so they would rotate in and uh they would get when, when the on the resupply drop and they would get uh, resupplied and then they'd rotate out and go back out to the desert and then a new team would come in and then with the next drop, you know, every couple of days you're doing a drop, and that's how they resupplied the teams, and the teams would just uh, would just roam the desert. But their their speed was their um, was their security. So as we were as we're looking uh, initially, there we were going to go in by air, and uh, and then right at the last minute, they the intel was saying, hey, they got these technicals like the Somalis had, and uh, they've got these big guns on them, and they're going to swarm anything so they've got they've got air defense hand you know man man packs they've got uh, they've got radios and they get the ability to swarm so we can't do holes or, or we get overrun uh, we can't do we can't bring them in by air uh, because we'll get shot down and uh, so right at the last minute it all changed and so we brought them over to where we were at in Jordan we brought all the uh, the international partners like we had the uh, the Australians the the, the uh, Canadians and uh, and the Brits and they all have different vehicles so, uh, so we wanted to be able to see, 
you know, we, we found a breach in a wire basically near our, near our, uh, where we were at over on, uh, I think it was hotel five in the, in Jordan. So we, we found uh, up on the border to where they, there was, um, there was a big, big ass berm, about a hundred meters of uh, no man's land. And then another big ass berm. And so we found an area that was, that was just a choice spot that had um, guard posts far enough apart to where we could, we could actually breach this you know spot on the ground get our vehicles around uh, without the uh, the guard post getting us and uh, so so we'd recon that we put surveillance on it but now we had to figure out you know, can these vehicles get over that berm you know how far do we have to get this down so we tried one of those big combat engineer vehicles which is a basically an m60 tank chassis with a big old blade on the front too noisy to uh you know they, they would they we would never pull it off we tried a bobcat and uh, so early on, we had, uh, you know, from the, the previous time we invaded Iraq, the, uh, the teams, since security was their, you know, their, their movement was their security, and we needed MPs or somebody to come in behind us in case they surrendered in mass again. Because, you know, if we slowed down, we couldn't process them all. So we'd asked for, and we got infantry, and they were out of the Florida Guard. And uh, good kids. And so we're... Uh, so I'm standing there with the first sergeant from the Florida Guard, and uh, he goes, you know what, kind of one of those, you mind if my men take a crack at that? And uh, what ended up happening was it was Florida Guard with a, a one-quart canteen in one cargo pocket, five magazines in the other with a, with a vest and, a, and, a, and an M16, and they're carrying a D-handled shovel. And they went up there and they scraped the top of that, uh, those berms off just enough that the vehicles wouldn't high center. And to get them across that's why there's this grainy picture of the first troops going into iraq and you'll see an american flag and a florida flag up on uh, up on the berm you know in this this kind of green hue and there was the florida guardsmen that, uh, that that ran out there like ants and just took that thing down because the combat engineer vehicle couldn't do it a backhoe couldn't do it and a, and a, and a uh, uh one of those little cats couldn't do it so but you know kids could good old but, american uh, redneck ingenuity well, and that's what it was. And then, then he also said, Hey, I, I got some guys here that can fire mortars. So we, uh, we scrubbed theater to, uh, and we got, we, we trained two mortar teams and, uh, they went on either flank. And if anything happened, if any movement in those, uh, in those guard posts, they were just going to level them, uh, while they were digging, uh, digging the thing out. And, uh, yeah, they were, uh, they were, that was a good, good group of kids. Did it feel like a, a rotation? I mean, you started in the guard, that's who told you to join yeah, the Rangers. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. it's it's almost full circle. True. Yeah. Yeah. So you retire finally in 2003 after everything that we've talked about. And yeah, because I, I had, uh, I had um, cause, but to your point earlier, you know, I'm, I'm back in now, right? So I'm in. And yeah. So now I go back to my, my original plan, which was to serve in all three Ranger battalions and all five Special Forces groups. So, uh, so I figure I'm in fifth group now. You know, all I need is first group and uh, second Ranger battalion, and I'm good. Yeah, I, I can realize my boyhood dream. And so, I, so I'm back into okay. I'm going for thirty now, and uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do uh, my you know, my after this I'm gonna go to uh, second Ranger battalion. And after that, to first group. And you know, I'm already starting to work to work those angles. And so we come out of the box there in, in Iraq, and we uh, we come back to Jordan. And I call my wife on the phone and I'm like, Hey baby, I'm out of the box and click phone goes dead. So I'm thinking, 
must be a bad connection. So I call her again. <laughs> Click. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, okay, she's mad. And uh, so I go to the computer, I send her a note, and I say, uh, what's up, baby? And she goes, I'm tired of being an army wife. So she had had it. So Iraq broker, you know, the whole Djibouti to Iraq thing. Because we, we'd, we'd done the Pifwick stuff, so we were gone a lot. And then that went right into uh, Djibouti, which is like gone, gone. And then Iraq gone, gone. So she was uh, she was done. So I went to my uh, battalion commander and said, hey, I got I to gotta retire. And, uh, and at that time, they were, they were asking, uh, they were offering, since anybody who had been stop lost, you, know, you could turn in like 30, 60, or 90 days. And so I said, I'll take the 30-day burn. Because we, we had, uh, as luck would have it, too. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all dumb luck and timing. I mean, the uh, Mario V. Hill was my battalion ops sergeant major, super squared away guy. And uh, he had just pinned CSM. I got selected for CSM. And he had grown up in 1st Battalion. So I'm like, duh, it doesn't make any, you know, that uh, you, you, you pin him, put him in 1st Battalion. That, that lets me shrimp away. And, uh, and that's what we, we eventually did. So I turned in 30 days. It didn't really go away, though. I do want to ask a question, though, and, and, and I want to just go quickly over your, your quote-unquote civilian career, uh, still with Special Operations Command. Um, was, the, was the trip to Korea because you negotiated that assignment? Was that to pay the wife back for all the years? <laughs> yes, well, because because uh, coming out of the Sergeant's Major Academy, I uh, I actually put in for um, Debt K in Korea, and uh, so this is what back in '99. So I actually was on orders, no kidding, to uh, to Korea to Debt K in Seoul, you know, where she was born and where all her sisters are. And uh, at the last minute, the Sergeant Major came and he goes, "Hey, they're doing these Pifwick things in uh, in uh, 110." because they hadn't done them up to that point and uh, they need a steady hand over there. And I said, I'm in, send me. So I go, uh, I go home and I go, honey, you'll never guess, man. The, the army hosed this again. <laughs> so she didn't, she didn't get to go to Korea back then. So yeah, you, you're exactly right. That was payback. Was she happy with you? No more hangups on the phone. You get to go back to Korea. <laughs> it, it nice. was funny. Those like, it, I could have turned it into like a three or five year assignment. But she was ready to come home uh, at the two-year mark. Oh wow! Well, there you uh, go. And, and so I mean, she was uh, she missed the kids and the you know the dog, and so we even got her a dog over there, and a little corgi that speaks fluent Korean, and uh, so we, we brought him back. <laughs> so now we got a pack. That, well, you know, I want to talk about two more things before we talk about Global SOF. Um, I want to talk about the Bull Simons Award, uh, Commando Hall of Fame. Uh, or excuse me, Hall of Honor, and then the uh, Ranger Hall of Fame. And I want to ask you, with everything that's happened to you and everything going into it, does it make it all worth it, or does it make it more relevant to you? Uh, you know, I, I tell you, it's it's um, it, it's it's humbling because I mean, you, know, you don't get you don't get to where you're at. I mean, you get to like me, for example. I I was uh, I could always do what I want to do because my, my wife was supported, you know, hundred percent. And, uh, but also y you run into guys that in the command that are the same way. I mean, the, uh, I, I suck at administrative stuff, but I always had a guy that would step up and say, Hey, Sergeant Major, I will do this. And, uh, you know, and that, that would free me up to go to the range or go hang with the guys or, 
or go train. And uh, so, so it, it, it's, it's humbling in that, uh, you know, I, I didn't get there on my own. You know, there was a lot of dumb luck. There was a little bit of timing, but um, it, it's just, uh, and the memories, I mean, there's, I, I could think of a hundred examples of guys that probably deserve those, uh, that recognition more than I do. I just happen to be the guy that's holding it. Well, it's uh it's an amazing thing. You, I don't know that you see it that often where it's both. Um, it, that's a, that's a real rarity to see both of those. I want to move on to your final, what you're doing now and, uh, talk about it because it's a great organization. When I had Stu on here talking to him, um, and then I want to talk about your honorary Sergeant major of the first special forces regiment. So you are the director of military relations and you run a disabled veteran run. Um, I want to talk about going from everything you did in your military career to now doing this civilian career, because I asked Stu the same thing. It's completely different. It's completely different. And it's the same. You just self-admitted administration's not your thing, but this job entails a lot of administration. (laughs) That's true. And so, you know, so you look at it, how, how do you approach this in the same way that you approach the military or, you know, what is it that about this job that makes that thing of I'm not very good at administration stuff, but it works here? Yeah, I think, well, like like um, we fell into roles. So even though I'm the, the, the director of you know government relations, I'm, re- I'm really like Stu's sergeant major. So, uh, you know, Stu does officer business and I do sergeant major business. And, uh, and that's kind of how we work it. So I've, I've kind of we've kind of fallen into those roles. And uh, because it, that's how we were born and, and raised our entire career, so the uh, so 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 the, the bigger picture things is uh, is what he works on. You know, the, and the plans that are going out. You know, five years, ten years. You know, what uh, what are, what are the, uh, the the critical lines of effort that we need to do? And then I'm the guy that helps him execute it. And uh, so it, it's um, you know, hey, we, we need to we need a range. We need to do a range. Well, I run the range, and uh, you know, we need to, uh, we, we need to. So it, it's just, it's, it's fallen into those kind of roles. And then, uh, and then of course there's the girls, the smart girls, you got to surround yourself with smart, smart people. So, so Megan, you know, she's a, she's a Georgetown grad and I mean, the takes as good as she gets. And, uh, you know, she's the one that, uh, that, that keeps us honest. And, uh, you know, same thing with Chelsea. I mean, God, she's a machine and uh, she's our marketing director and, uh, I mean, runs circles around me on any given day. So that uh, you know, where, wherever, I'm, wherever I'm weak, you know they're strong, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of the I can do uh, I can come out and do uh, shaving commercials and book signings, and uh, but they they do all the they do all the hard the heavy lifting. You know, Kate, we just picked up uh, Caitlin as well, and uh, yeah, that it's um, good solid staff. Well, and I think that that could encompass your whole career, having good, solid people around oh, you that have yeah. always, you know, and it, it's interesting to hear from you and, and to say that you've had these people because you have really ever since the National Guard, these people around you that have always wanted you to do better. Now, I'm sure there's been people along the way that have doubted or tried things, but, but it's, it's amazing to hear how many people were in your corner from your wife to everybody that you worked with to the team that when you lost a child came together and made sure that you were taken care of through your entire career. That's a very blessed career to have. 
You know, it, it, and the, the one I mean, you hit on a great point too is that you never realize the the impact that you have on people by just doing what you do. And uh, I mean, I've I've had people come up to me and say, "Yeah, you know, when you said this, that really, uh, that really, that really, you know, inspired me and, and and made me do better." I'm like, "Man, I don't even remember saying that. I must have." Was it, was I sober when I said that? <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean. So, so I, I think, and people I think are just that way. You know, they're just out there being the best that they can be, and uh, and, and going about their their daily lives, not thinking that there's a plan to influence or. It, 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 uh, but you, you don't know, you know, who either God put in your in your way, or or if you're that guy that uh, put in somebody else's way. But um, it, it's yeah, you're right. I mean, my entire career has been like that. It's a it's an amazing career. And I, I don't say that lightly to you, Rick. Um, I was so excited that I was going to get to talk to you about everything that you've done everywhere that you've been. There are very few people on this planet that can say they've been to as many places and seen as many things as you have. And to still have that bright outlook on life, to still be knocking away at that, you know, that mission still with global SOF, trying to set up those teams, trying to set up those quote unquote informants and people that can help you get on the ground over there to still be doing it over 40 years later is an amazing career. And you should be so impressed and proud of yourself and the mission that you've done. You know, it's weird too, is we, 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 we keep learning uh, the other day and that uh, we were looking at transition to where um, as, as, a, as a guy or a gal comes out of the military and they get into their next job. You know, we, we initially thought as part of Global Soft that we'd have this, um, this program called Soft for Life, to where we would, uh, we would get them to their why. You know, we would use the Honor Foundation, and, uh, which is, is a great organization. Started in the, in the Navy with the SEALs, but now it's, it's, uh, they, they do all the, all the soft branches. But they'll sit down in a uh, you know, three-day four week, six week, uh, depending if your your butt's in the seat or if you're doing um, a couple of days a week online, and they will get you to your why, to your purpose. And because uh, a lot of a lot of guys will get out. I mean, the, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but the military is a very sheltered lifestyle. I mean, you're told what to wear, you're told where to be, you live on post, you eat in a chow hall, you know, you got the the, the basic security, you got your own schools, you got your own Walmart, you got your so you got everything that, that you need, and uh, all you need to worry about is somebody killing you, and that only happens about every five years, right? So, but it's a sheltered lifestyle. So you you, you walk out, and you know, the uh, there was a guy he wrote uh, Sebastian Unger uh, Younger wrote a book called uh, um, Tribe, and it was about outpost Restrepo, and he said one of the things that he had noticed was that um, they would the guys would crawl out under fire and grab a kid and pull him to safety and they didn't even like him and uh, so that's you know part of the tribe so so you don't find that once you're out and uh, so getting you to your why getting you to your purpose was uh we thought that uh, and then of course you know your health and and, uh, and we, we use Skillbridge, which is a dod program to so somebody can write seat ride or, or be an in, have an internship based on their why and then they get employment and we thought, man, we're, we're, this is good. This is great. This is goodness. And then people started killing themselves. You know, people we knew. And we're like, man, I just talked to that dude. What is up with that? And so we started reverse engineering some of the suicides. And we found out that uh, you know, we can't just leave them after that first job. 
and, and say, you know, we, we've, we're good, you know, soft for life should have, you know, there, there's, there's an indication there that that's for, for life. And, uh, and you go through different lives, you know, in your walk. So the, uh, what we found out, you know, from re- reverse engineering some of the suicides that it kind of boils down to five things. And it's, uh, it's faith, it's family, fitness, friends, and finance. So those are, those are like the, the you know, whether you call them the five pillars or your five pillars of resiliency or, or, um, you know, your, your reach back, your grounding. I mean, whatever it is, the, um, it, it always had to do with those five things. And it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs to where, depending on where you're at in your life, you know, like, like Stu and I both hard broke last year. You know, he, he pulled both of his biceps and I, uh, I, I tore my rotator cuff and my hamstring. And so health, you know, fitness goes right up to the top, but there's a mental fitness to it. And there's a physical fitness, just like faith. I mean, faith, um, there, there's a spiritual aspect to it, but there's also a, um, a secular aspect to it. So a lot of the guys are, um, I mean, you, you, you do bad things and you see bad things. And uh, I mean, the first time you see a dead child, you're like, man, is, is God, even, does he even care? Does he exist? You know, how does he let this stuff happen? So, so your faith is damaged. Uh, but then your secular faith, you know, the, uh, I, I would imagine there's, there's, there's guys and gals that uh, just did tours in Afghanistan that figured out, Hey, um, you know, my, I, I don't have faith in my nation in the institutions, you know, so you've lost your secular faith. And uh, so if you lose your faith and then your family starts, you know, start, you start losing your family because you're short circuited, you're, uh, you're, you're wired, your fight or flight, you know, is, 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 is groomed you to be the best asshole on the planet. And, uh, you, know, you want everything a certain way where you can't even take a vacation without, uh, telling the kids that this is your load plan for your suitcase. This is the load plan for the, for the van. We're going to be, the van will be loaded by this time, or we're going to depart by this time. Well, that doesn't happen with kids. It can happen with, you know, with green berets or rangers, but it's not going to happen with kids. So now you're angry at your kids by the time you leave the, the, the uh, the driveway because you're late and then you're scanning the roadside for bombs for freaking uh, for people that are congregating i mean that goes away after a while but but in in those you know as you're as you're in the thick of it and so you're your hair trigger you don't like loud noises and uh, so the family starts to suffer and uh, so if you lose your faith you lose your family you lose your fitness and uh you're going to think that the world is better off without you and you're probably going to kill yourself so you can lose two of the five i think um and survive but if you lose three or more and, and, we, and we just we came to that recently to the point of where we're like that's how we're going to bend it now so uh you, you probably won't reach out to friends because you don't want to be the weak link so now you have to be the friend that reaches out to your friends and ask them how their family's doing you know how's your job doing hey how's your fitness how's your faith you know so you'll start asking those and if uh, three of those alarms start going off then then you know that you there, there's somebody you got to go give a hug to and and uh, they need to do some work, but, but that's, that's how I think I've been it now that, um, you know, I, I got to work on the family. I got to work on the faith. I got to work on the fitness and, uh, I got great friends and, uh, you know, my finances are fine. So the, um, I, that's kind of what we're still learning. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I think I see the same thing and, and you and I have talked to it offline about this. I saw it in law enforcement too. You see these guys that yes. give, 20, 25, 30 years, 35 years, whatever it may be, they get it. They see all these things and then they get out and they lose purpose in life. They they've never taken up a hobby. They've never gone on trips. They've never done anything. That was their whole life. Yeah. 
And six months after they're out, they're dead, either of a heart attack, suicide, whatever. And they don't see that there's a world that starts after all of it's over. And, and it gets, it gets to that statement, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees. You're absolutely right. I remember my, you know, my son's a deputy down here in Florida. And uh, so when he got pinned, the, uh, the sheriff came over and put his arm around him and, and he told him exactly that. He said, uh, you guys are all fit. Now you're coming out of the Academy, which is like nine months long. And, and he said, so stay fit. He, uh, don't get fat. He says, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be sleeping odd. You're going to be eating odd. And, uh, then you're going to be on your ass a lot driving in that car. So he said, you've got to keep your fitness. And he said, I want you to get friends outside of law enforcement. And he says, you have to have a tie that's outside this community that'll ground you. And, uh, and that was good advice. Yeah, I, I see it. And, and you're exactly right. It's, it's military, it's first responders, it's, it's, uh, you know, law enforcement. And, and I think even more, and I think you would probably tend to agree with me after COVID and after all these lockdowns and everything, it's even worse because who were the people that were out there every day? It's your first responders, your law enforcement, your medical personnel and your military. They were essential and they were essential up to a point where, you know, Hey, you're just going to go out without a shot, without anything, whatever you need. And I think that you look at these guys and they get done and, and they think, what was it all for? I wasn't around for baseball games. I wasn't around for this. I wasn't, what was it all for? And they really lose focus. It's not like you're ever going to solve crime. It's like you said, your first words on on this podcast were, you know, you're you're not going to stop wars. Right. It's inevitable. (laughs) And we're naive if we think we can. Yeah. You're, you're hunting a monster that you'll never find because it's just not going to happen. There's not pre-crime until we figure that out, you know, where we can minority report things and, and see it ahead of time. It's just not going to happen. So what you guys do at, at global soft is, is amazing, especially with the soft for life and everything that you're doing. Um, I want to wrap this up by just telling you how much I appreciate you coming on the show, how much I appreciate what you guys do and, and uh, where people can find you. That's gsof.org, gsof.org. They can go and see everything that you guys are doing, programs, events, connect, all those different things. There's even a member portal now. Um, once people get there, they, they can figure out everything. The symposiums that you guys have, these things are absolutely amazing ones in europe ones in america every year um and people really need to be checking you guys out especially the guys that are getting out that transition uh i think it can really help them is there anything else that you want to plug rick no just the uh yeah it's a great team if if you're if you're on active duty right now it's free so uh so sign up i think it costs you 25 bucks after you're out but um but the, the reason we do that is because if you don't if you don't pay for something you just sign up you'll never get back to it but uh, if you go hey i paid good money for this then uh, then you'll get back to it and you'll actually uh, use the uh, the resources that are available well that's going to be it guys once again check these guys out gsof.org Rick Lamb, it was great to have you in the studio. If you guys want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Remember, guys, the best stories are true, and I bring them to you every week. That's why you come here. 
That's Rick. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.